How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. In today's episode, I have the great privilege of speaking with Scott Cohen. Scott was featured in the September article entitled Long Haulers, The Casualties of COVID-19 by Valerie Amato. Scott is a retired paramedic out of Nassau County, Long Island. His story is moving, powerful, and insightful. And I would even go further as to say, very timely. As we continue to fight this virus, we are starting to see second waves in areas that have been ravaged by initial surges in March and April. His perspective should serve as a stark reality and provide guidance, not just for responders, but for the general public as well. Scott, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. At the outset, Scott, how are you feeling? Uh, I consider myself to be very luckily uh, about 98% back to my normal self couple of little quirks. Uh, you'll hear my cough. Um, I apparently had an undiagnosed case of very mild reflux and being intubated for as long as I was really exacerbated the, uh, that to the point now I have severe reflux and uh, my vocal cords, my trachea are, uh, are somewhat inflamed and it's uh, causing this. So maybe one of the symptoms of this whole long hauler phenomenon, Scott, um, which we're going to get into. But before we do that, I, I'm curious if you could just take us through the timeline of events that you experienced uh, with COVID-19, basically the story. Um, just, you know, in, inform the listeners as to what went down with this. Okay. Uh, probably maybe the third week in March uh, when the governor had uh, given the stay home order for non-essential people. I mean, we packed up our office here, as, uh, as you said, I'm retired as, the, as, a, as a medic. Um, but we have, we do a lot of importing now and we've been dealing directly with our friends in China. So we've really been, had a lot of inside information on this before it even became you know prevalent here in the U.S. But uh, shortly after that stay at home order, um, my father started getting sick. He just thought it was a cold. Um, that progressed for him until uh, the end of March, where he wound up uh, in the hospital, um, immediately put on a ventilator. His sats were, I believe, uh, in the low 60s uh, when he came in, and uh, he was in real bad distress. Um, <laughs> a few days later, um, I had uh, just suddenly chills out of nowhere. I had no symptoms. Just literally, I was walking from a building to my car while I'm in the parking lot. Boom, it just started getting the chills. Um, I know just from my own experience with myself, if I don't take care of a chest cold quickly, uh, it's going to progress into something. <clears throat> I immediately went to uh, my doctor the next day. I got uh, um, some steroids, and <clears throat> uh, antibiotic, and uh, nebulizer, <clears throat> which 99.9% of the time does the trick for me. <clears throat> um I found out afterwards I had only taken the first two days of the steroid before I uh, I wound up going to the hospital. <clears throat> and I remember being in my room. Uh, my wife came in and she said, uh, are you okay? Uh, 
<clears throat> and I know you know everyone here is, is listening is, is probably in this field. Sometimes uh, we're our own worst enemy uh, when it comes to uh, our own healthcare. We know better. <clears throat> well, it was a it was a real scary moment when she asked me that, and I looked at her and I said no. <clears throat> um, and then <clears throat> she asked me what should she do. <clears throat> Now, you know, we all know what you should do in an emergency, <laughs> especially when you can't breathe, you call 911. <clears throat> and I, I remember, remember being so incredibly frightened of being where my father is, <clears throat> you know, in his position. Um, I didn't know what to do. I, I couldn't answer. <clears throat> and I finally said, I think you need to make the call. <laughs> and she started crying. <clears throat> Eventually, she called. Uh, coincidentally, my old partner came and picked me up. <clears throat> uh, and uh, I wound up in the emergency room <clears throat> having the uh, COVID test, uh, which we all know is like uh, taking a uh, biopsy of your brain through your nose while you're awake. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I sat there for a few hours. The timeline kind of gets foggy here. I remember them trying to force me to stay prone. I was on a nasal cannula and a non-rebreather. <clears throat> and I mean, just besides being restless, not being able to breathe, you know, they're, they're trying to make you stay on your stomach, which is not a real comfortable position. And uh, within, I don't know if it was a few hours, I'm imagining it was, <clears throat> they moved me to a COVID unit <clears throat> uh, where I stayed for another couple of days, uh, getting progressively worse. Uh, the lowest I've seen my SATs, I think they were 80 or 82, <clears throat> uh, when they finally brought me up to the ICU. <clears throat> um which was real in itself, real scary for me, not only because, <clears throat> you know, I've been watching on the news, <clears throat> speaking to China directly about where, you know, this goes when it goes downhill. <clears throat> Plus, I have my own knowledge as, as a medic and I have my own father is up there <clears throat> on a vent. <clears throat> and uh, I remember saying to them, you know, please, when you take me up there, I, I don't want to see my father like this. I don't, if God forbid something happens, I don't want to remember him, my last sight of him. The way it was and uh, they assured me they had a, another room uh you know and i wouldn't see him and i stayed there for <clears throat> i think conscious i was there for a couple of days <clears throat> it could have honestly been a few hours uh but i remember being proned out <clears throat> and the doctor came in with somebody i couldn't see him i could only hear the voice <clears throat> and i remember saying to him uh doc <clears throat> you know i'm done <clears throat> You know, I think you need to put me on a vent. And he's like, well, why are you saying that? And I'm like, and he knew, well, he knew my background. And I, I remember saying, I'm, I'm accessory muscle breathing right now, so I don't have much more time. <clears throat> I said, you could either tube me or you could put somebody in a chair next to me and watch my breath because, you know, it, I don't have that long. <clears throat> and uh, they opted to have somebody watch me because at this point in time, they had realized uh, you know, speaking to doctors all over the world that, that, that venting people quickly was really the wrong move. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that was my last, uh, that was my last memory. <clears throat> um, I, my, my next memory, <clears throat> um, I was on the vent for 10 days. So it could have been 10 days later, 12, 11 days. I don't really know. <clears throat> was uh, I woke up and a nurse was holding an iPad on FaceTime. And, you know, on the other side was my wife and my three sons. And they asked me to name them. <clears throat> and, you know, at that point in time, I knew I was alive. <clears throat> but 
uh, I continued probably for the next six or seven days to have horrible, when I say horrible, I just mean horribly crazy, uh, nothing scary, nothing dangerous, but hallucinations. <clears throat> As I've, I've joked with you, Mike, <clears throat> previously I tell people, uh, you know, you haven't lived until you've been on the observation deck of a 747 at 37,000 feet with rare blue Japanese wolves. <clears throat> Where that comes into play, who knows, but that's, you know, probably the craziest of my hallucinations. I, I thought the hospital was a boat. <clears throat> uh, you know, there were lucid periods in there for a few minutes here and there, uh, <clears throat> but even signs on the wall uh, I was reading, they would change daily or when I looked at them, uh, it wasn't until my roommate <clears throat> had uh, checked out, they opened the curtain. I had a, uh, a bed by the door. <clears throat> they opened the curtain, and across the way from me, I could see the firehouse <clears throat> um, you know, that was in the precinct that I used to work in. <clears throat> and from that point time forward, I knew where I was, and I became more and more lucid um, all of the time. <clears throat> um, a few days later, maybe... I shouldn't say a few, maybe seven or eight days later when I became completely conscious, <clears throat> um, I had learned that during the time I was on the ventilator, my father uh, had passed away. He, uh, he had been resuscitated several times. Uh, he was at this point on dialysis. And you're talking about a, a guy who's 80, who if you saw him, you thought he was in his mid-60s <clears throat> and was completely active, uh, you know, other than uh, type 2 diabetes. You know, he was fine. He was an active guy, young, went to work, you know, 40 hours a week. <clears throat> um, and uh, that was really, that was really rough <clears throat> uh, processing that. And what made it worse, honestly, is I was alone. <clears throat> uh, I couldn't hug my wife. I couldn't hug my brothers, my kids. You know, I'm here knowing that I, I literally was almost dead. <clears throat> and now learning that my father died and you know, you, you're, you, you can't move. I had so much muscle atrophy that I couldn't even sit up. <clears throat> uh, and really when they talk about just laying there and wallowing in your own pity and grief, it's what I did for, for days. <clears throat> um, they made a, a special exception for my wife to come up. The floor at that point in time was no longer, they no longer had any active, active cases of COVID on the floor. <clears throat> so they made an exception for her to come up. And, you know, after five or 10 minutes, I, I told her she had to leave because you know, she was home taking care of my children. <clears throat> um, you know, and my wife and my kids got sick too. They've all tested a positive for, uh, for antibodies. <clears throat> um, where the story really gets crazy. I learned in hindsight is, <clears throat> um, I was in really bad shape. <clears throat> Uh, I did not have more than uh, a couple of days to live. <clears throat> um, the hospital did not have a convalescent plasma program. <clears throat> it was still really the Wild West back then when it came to plasma. <clears throat> uh, so it was long before even the, uh, the Mayo Clinic was involved in, in distribution with the compassionate care. But uh, my brothers had heard about it. <clears throat> they went to the hospital. They said no. Um, Thank God, my brothers, I love them. They're very stubborn and uh, they lost, they, they, they knew my father was very bad and, and bleak and they, you know, they didn't want to lose either of us. <clears throat> they started a petition that garnered, uh, I think, a little over 20,000 signatures in 24 hours. <clears throat> my other brother went on uh, 
local NBC station out of New York, <coughs> uh, and the hospital agreed to give it to me on a compassionate care basis, uh, to me and my father, I should say. <coughs> um, the plasma just didn't show up for the, the time frame that they said it was coming, it was coming, and it never did, and I don't blame them. Like I said, it was kind of like the Wild West. <coughs> uh, Diana Barrett from Survivor Corps <coughs> saw the petition on her friend's Facebook page. <coughs> and at that time, uh, <coughs> Survivor Corps, she jokes, it was kind of like the, uh, the Tinder of plasma. <coughs> they were really matching people. Someone would come in and say, you know, look, I need AB positive. <coughs> and she would kind of figure out who had it and kind of put them together and, <coughs> and get it. And, uh, you know, after the plasma not arriving at my hospital, she got involved <coughs> the next morning. It was there. Uh, unfortunately it was not enough for two people. <coughs> um, I, I wound up getting it, uh, within 24 hours. Uh, like I said, I was sitting up and I was talking to my wife, uh, and kids on the iPad and, um, you know, that's really my story as a whole. And, you know, over the past few months, I was discharged April 26th. <clears throat> I stayed on oxygen with a double COVID pneumonia until uh, the second week in July. <clears throat> uh, I spent about a week and a half to two weeks learning how to walk with a walker. <clears throat> uh, and then another few weeks with a cane. And, you know, luckily now, like I said, I consider myself about 98%. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's really my, uh, my story. And quite the story it is Scott. And, and I just wanted you to, you know, to go with that story. I mean, I think, you know, that was a prolonged period of time for you to speak, but it was so important for the entire thing to go uninterrupted because there was so much involved in, in that story. There's so many parts that were probably omitted just because, you know, know exactly what happened. But the fact of the matter is you went through a horrific experience near death. You lost your father in the process, which by the way, condolences on that because that's horrific. And then your family had to fight for you to get the convalescent plasma. Thank God they did. But my curiosity, Scott, is what was it like being on the other side of the hospital curtain this time? As providers, we're always so cavalier about this stuff. And, and I don't, I don't want to speak for everyone, but many times you just kind of get into the mindset like, this isn't going to happen to me. It'll never happen to me. Then you found yourself lying there prone with an O2 sat 80 to 82, knowing that you were impending respiratory failure. What did that feel like in your mind at that time? It's a, it's a great question. Uh, it, it kind of varied the spectrum, to be honest with you. <clears throat> um, I didn't honestly do a lot of worrying about myself. <clears throat> I really, at that point in time, I, I had accepted death if it came my way. <clears throat> uh, there wasn't anything I could do about it. <clears throat> and as, as odd as the sounds, you know, everyone being in, in this profession, you know, death is easy. <clears throat> you're dead. As far as you're concerned, it's over with. It's really the people that you leave behind that have the trauma to deal with. And that's really what I, I my own mind, was focusing with. I was really worried about my wife and my kids, <clears throat> you know, uh, financial problems and who's going to pay the bills and, you know, who's going to take my kids to soccer or hockey or, or these things. And I didn't really spend much time on myself. <clears throat> I will say I did reflect <clears throat> um, 
I did reflect a lot on some things that my, my friends uh, that are currently working were telling me and kind of trying to look around the ER as best I can and, and see. <clears throat> and it's, you know, as, as people involved in EMS, <clears throat> our job is to respond <clears throat> and take people to the hospital. It doesn't matter if they have a splint deer in their finger or they're having an MI. If they want to go to the hospital, it's our job to care for them and get them to definitive medical care. <clears throat> And what I was hearing from a lot of my friends, they were literally in a matter of seconds told, no, that's not your job anymore. <clears throat> if you show up to this difficulty breathing call, <clears throat> no matter how bad it is, if this patient does not fit the criteria, leave them home. <clears throat> the ERs and the hospitals are too packed. There are no beds. There are no ventilators. <clears throat> and, you know, they can, they can convalesce at home. And there's no need for them for the ER right now. And, you know, I hear my friends saying, you know, they'd respond to a call and they'd be like, I'm sorry, I can't take you to the hospital. And in some cases, family members grabbing them, you know, and crying and saying, you know, how can you leave and calling them things? And then you hear, you know, grown men, women waking up in the middle of the night, you know, in, in sweats and crying because, you know, they didn't do their they didn't do their job as they were trained and how they've been doing for years, and you know I focused a lot on that and and very you know it's very emotional it's <clears throat> it's scary uh, you know and I, I worried like I said about my them I worried about my family. Yeah, and I think that there like you say the empathy part of this takes on a whole new meaning with you as a provider, somebody that has witnessed people in pending respiratory failure or those that just can't carry on breathing anymore, I would suspect that until you get to that point yourself, you don't really have a true idea of what that feels like. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it definitely makes you look at things from the other side. You know, as, as humans, we're kind of trained ourselves to, uh, to kind of block these things, almost become callous in some ways, as, as self-protection of ourselves <clears throat> and, you know, literally just like they were told in a, in a matter of minutes not to do the job in that same time frame, <clears throat> the way that you think is, as, as now a patient provider <clears throat> is literally spun around because, you know, even at times where you couldn't go to the bathroom by yourself, you're now relying on all of these people some of the some of your friends and if you really take a, a complete 180 degree change in the way you're looking and you know you speak of empathy <clears throat> you know it, it it really it really is it's a great word for it uh it's it's sad i almost wish that <clears throat> i had experienced not something like this but something earlier on in my career that would have made me more empathetic in dealing with my patients um you know, not that I ever treated them poorly. Of course, I didn't. But, you know, it's hard to understand what somebody else is going through. Uh, you know, I had a boss that used to say, <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> even if you get a call for someone who just needs a Band-Aid, <clears throat> to you, you're annoyed. Why are they calling me for this nonsense? It's a waste of my time. It could be going to somebody more serious. <clears throat> but to that person, that to have to, to have to say I need to call 911 is, is a traumatic event in itself for these people. And he always tried to, you know, get us to, to, to look at things like that. 
Absolutely. A hundred percent. And Scott, I think that th there's a lot that came to the surface and we could probably speak for two hours on this, but th this whole COVID surge, you know, we dealt with specifically here in the Northeast in, in March and April. It, it's been ongoing, obviously nationwide. And, and unfortunately, it seems like we are now heading into a possible second wave in our area. It's been politicized in ways. And I think that from the healthcare perspective, we realize the significance of this and we realize that this should never be politicized. We have to do everything that we possibly can to prevent situations like yours from occurring. And although that you were lucky and you were able to come out of this on the other side, so many weren't. And so as we close out here, I just want you to touch upon the lessons that you've learned with this and the importance of following guidelines as we look to continue to combat this until we have a vaccine and proven uh, therapeutics? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think my story alone <clears throat> could tell people this is not a joke. I know there are a lot of naysayers out there. Uh, <clears throat> I know both political parties are using this to, you know, to, to, to better their stance in the polls. <clears throat> this is not in any way, shape. A political <clears throat> virus. It does not care about your color, your race, your creed, your religion, your political affiliation. <clears throat> if it finds a host that it likes, <clears throat> it's coming for you. And you don't know how bad it is. It could be simple, it could be asymptomatic, it could kill you. <clears throat> and people need to take it seriously. You need to wash your hands, you need to wear your mask and change it frequently. <clears throat> you need to be careful. You need to not put yourself into a situation unnecessarily just because <clears throat> you feel like this is going on long enough. And you know what? I'm going to go into this place and, and do everything. <clears throat> you got to go in. Absolutely go in. It's very important that we live our lives safely and according to what the scientists are actually telling us. <clears throat> and, you know, I, I also, uh, I, I really implore people in humans, we're social creatures, um, being locked down for you know months, not having structure for kids for school and not being able to go to work and all of these things. It has a, a tremendous psychological impact on all of us. And just about every person I've ever met in EMS has got some form of PTSD, whether they know it or not. And you know, this, this event is PTSD, but it's not for EMS workers. It's for everybody. <clears throat> and, you know, if you're not feeling well or you're not happy, or you're depressed or you're just, you know, I, I use the word blah, <clears throat> go speak to someone. Absolutely. Scott, your story is a powerful one, and, and I'm really grateful for you to come on to share it with us. I ask that you continue to keep up the great work sharing your story with others so that they can actually start to, you know, understand the significance of this as we move forward in this pandemic, because it's just been so tragic in so many ways. But stories like yours bring about positivity that we also need to experience. So I want to thank you again for coming on with me today. And uh, I look forward to, to hearing more about your progress and uh, just be well. All right. Thanks, Mike. If I can just real quick, I, I really would like people if they can to visit uh, survivorcorps.com. Uh, <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, you can visit Survivor Corps. It's an open group on Facebook. Right now, there's about 108,000 survivors from all over the world. You can ask questions. There's a lot you can learn. You can search in there on the webpage. <clears throat> if you've had COVID, you can sign up for just about any clinical trial uh, that you qualify for. And uh, if you've had COVID and you have antibodies, please go donate convalescent plasma. That one dose could save three to four people. It's an hour of your day. It's completely selfless. And, uh, and you know, please help. Absolutely, Scott. And we will absolutely post that link up and we will also tag that. And thank goodness for Survivor Corps and all the incredible work that they're doing. I want to thank everybody for listening. This has been another episode of EMS World Podcast. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Stay tuned for the next episode. Thanks again. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 